All right, well, good morning, all. First Peter chapter 4, go ahead and turn there. First Peter chapter 4, we're going to read 1 through 6. And preaching this morning is going to come primarily from verse 6. But let's read 1 through 6 together here. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for his example of one who entrusted his soul to you. Um, Lord, we know that obedience to you will bring great joy into our lives, but we know that it will also bring great pain at times. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would give us that resolve inwardly that as days go dark, grow darker, as opposition increases in our land, we pray, Father, that we would be able to hold on to these truths that Peter is, is, is holding out to us, that he's reminding us. Lord, that we should have nothing more to do with the world. We're not missing out on anything. We already have all in Christ. And Lord, that ultimately all the injustice in this world will one day be rectified because you are ready to judge the living and the dead, and you will judge them. And Lord, also we just thank you for the hope that we have beyond the grave. Resurrection life, resurrection existence by the Holy Spirit. All of these things, Lord, they're in some ways, Lord, just hard for our our flesh, our minds, our, our earthly frames to grasp. Um, But Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, give us the strength to hear these things, to love these things, to live out of these things. And Lord, give me the ability to communicate these things to your people. Lord, this is your holy word. There is no question about it. Lord, you've preserved it these thousands of years prior that your people might be instructed in the way. Um, Lord, that, that we might please you in every respect and bear fruit in every good work and And not stumble when trials and tough times come upon us as believers. So Lord, we we just thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you for these apostles that you set apart to write these scriptures. We thank you for their example in history, Lord. If history is true, if tradition is true, most if not all of them died for their faith. And again, Lord, we, we just thank you for just the picture of their just hope. Hope beyond this world. And Lord, help us to always, again, live like that. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a little bit of review here. In 1 through 5, Peter's been calling believers to put on the mindset of suffering as we follow Jesus as exiles in this world. Remember, that's what Peter calls us at the beginning, that you are elect exiles, strangers here. Peter wants us to know that suffering was the path of Jesus, our master. Suffering will be our path as we follow him. And Peter holds out a great incentive to have this mindset of choosing to obey God no matter the cost. And that incentive is that if you choose to have that mindset, he says that you have ceased from sin. Now, that doesn't mean sinless perfection, But what it does mean is that sinful patterns and trajectories cease and one will live for the will of God and not the lusts of men. These lusts of men that Peter talks about here were experienced by these 
believers, these believers that were formerly in the world, or the Gentiles, as Peter calls them, unbelieving world, they used to indulge in these lusts, experience these lusts before their conversion, but now the gospel has changed them. They no longer run into those things anymore that they once loved, and their old crew, he says here, is surprised. They think it's strange. And not only do they think it's strange, but they malign them. They speak evil of these believers. The irony that people think it an evil thing that you be delivered from evil. (laughs) And yet they do, because obviously when you're delivered from evil, it sheds light on the fact that they still indulge in it, and then they're offended, and and they they don't like the light shining on these things, and therefore they malign them. We talked about that a little bit, the absurdity of Cain's hatred for his brother. Why did Cain hate his brother? Well, because his brother's deeds were righteous and his were evil. It's absurd, really. But then John goes on to tell us that, well, if you think about it, though, it makes sense because Cain was of the evil one. It was pure hatred energized by the prince of darkness himself. And that certainly is probably what's going on here underneath the surface. The world hates Christians oftentimes because Satan is behind them with an immense hatred himself. Satan knows that his time is short and he knows that his judgment is sure. And so he goes after and wants to take as many people with him as possible. But these believers here that Peter's writing to, they no longer live according to the lust of the flesh. They no longer live this way, and yet they will be maligned, they will be thought of as evil, and so the hope that Peter gives them, verse 5, is not to take judgment or matters into their own hand, but to have the big picture in mind. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They must remember that God is ready. God is ready to judge. God is far more ready than we are to balance out the scales of justice in his world. God is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so continuing Peter's thought from verse 5, Peter goes on now to say this sort of enigmatic verse. And he says, For unto this end was the gospel preached, even to the dead. This is the ASV, which I think captures the sense probably better than the New American Standard. But... Let me read it again. For unto this end was the gospel preached even to the dead, that they might be judged indeed according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now before I get into this text, just a word here about this particular one. It's not an easy one. I would say so far this one's harder for me probably than 1 Peter 3.18 to come to terms with exactly what he means in every term here. Specifically, with regard to the dead, I'm pretty sure I know what he's saying there. Um, and then also this, according to men in the flesh, this, this phrase. Again, pretty sure I know what he's saying, but um, this has been a challenging one. I've read and thought and prayed and read and thought and prayed. And uh, again, I, I, think I'm, I think I'm pretty clear on it now. I get more and more clear as I think about it. But this is one of those texts that I'll probably want to talk to Peter about one day. <clears throat> Just be like, did I get that right? Um, and knowing Peter will probably want to tell me. So, But with our text this morning, Peter continues his flow of thought. He doesn't stop. He's just brought up the reality of the judgment of the living and the dead, the sure judgment of the living and the dead. In other words, all people everywhere in all of history. And in verse 6, I think he speaks to a question that some of his readers may have had at some point. Okay, God will judge the living and those who have died. But what about those Christians who have died? What will become of them? Perhaps these Christians were persecuted and died even a cruel death. This doesn't seem like an attractive prospect of following Jesus. And Peter's message is essentially this. The gospel was preached to them. And that same gospel saved them and changed them from living this this life of sinful desire for which they were maligned and judged. And it's that same gospel that grants them the resurrection life after death by the Spirit of God. And I think that's what Peter is saying here. 
that the same gospel that saved them and changed them from living lives, indulging in the lusts of men, verse 2 and 3, is that same gospel that gives them hope and resurrection life after the grave. I think that's what Peter is driving at here. So let's break it down a little bit. So look at the term there, for, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached. So four links us back to, bef- to what went on before. So continuing the thought of these people maligning the believers in light of the day of judgment where God will bring those wrongs to right. And Peter goes on now, connects it with four, and brings us forward now into the purpose of the gospel. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached to those who are dead. So what what does he mean here? Well, I think what he's saying here is that this gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those that are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. In other words, these people who are believers now, or these people who who were alive at one time had the gospel preached to them, they believed and were saved, this gospel not only offers them future hope, but will also bring them into this realm of judgment, the judgment of men. And so this is what's on Peter's mind. In other words, the gospel has really two effects. It brings judgment on us, and it also brings life. I think that's the nutshell of the connection there, why he continues his thought there. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached. And I'll break that down even more, but that's, that's sort of the nutshell. But it's this gospel, the good news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ offered and commanded. It's this gospel that Peter has in mind here. And this gospel is something to be proclaimed or preached, Peter says here. It's always important for us to remember that, right? The gospel is, again, it's, it's something we can, we can say that we share, and that's, I guess, fine and all. But as long as you don't have in mind share in terms of you can sort of take it or leave it, there's one option among many. No, this gospel must be proclaimed. It's not just something that's good for you, right? It's something that is necessary for all. So it's a gospel that must be proclaimed. It doesn't mean you have to, in high volume, proclaim it in someone's face. But it does mean that you must be, in some sense, um, Uh, holding out the absolute exclusive claims of the gospel. This is not just something for me. This is something that must be believed and obeyed. It must be. It must be embraced or else. And Peter says here that it's, the gospel has has for this purpose been preached. Has for this purpose. I'm going to talk about this purpose a little bit more in a second here, but let's talk a little bit about these these recipients of this gospel. That this gospel is preached even to those who are dead. The gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Now what are the options here with regard to the dead? Who are they? Well, there's actually, gosh, there's been a lot of conversation generated about this over the years over the history of the church. But three main interpretations are typically given. One is, is that the gospel is preached to the dead. That is, that somehow the gospel is preached to the dead by Christ when he went to hell. Some people believe that Jesus went to hell after the crucifixion. When he was buried, he went to hell and he preached there to the dead. Sort of a post-mortem opportunity of salvation. Um... I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I don't think that works because the scriptures do not teach that Christ went into hell, number one. And also, if you hold that this text teaches that Christ went to hell to preach the gospel so that folks come to life by the Spirit, as Peter goes on to say, then that sort of teaches a kind of universalism. And that's heresy. So um, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time there. But the reality is that I think the text does not indicate for us that the gospel is preached to dead people, either by Christ or in any other way. 
some sort of post-mortem opportunity. Number two, as far as who the dead are, some people think that the gospel that is preached was preached to those who are spiritually dead. Like Paul says, that those who are dead in trespasses and sins, um, and dead in the uncircumcision of his flesh in Colossians 2. And And so in this sense, the gospel brings life through faith, and these people are made alive by the Spirit. And maybe that's what Peter means. And I'll be honest with you, for a long time, I just sort of assumed that that's kind of what Peter is saying here, but I I'm not finally persuaded that that's true. Um, I think that's definitely true. that The gospel is preached to the spiritually dead because all people outside of Christ are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. But I don't think that that's primarily Peter's meaning here. Peter doesn't usually talk about unbelievers as dead in sin. Um, I can't seem to find a place where he insinuates that or implies that. Um, at all. There could be a place I'm not thinking of, but Paul certainly does. Jesus does. Peter doesn't take up that track. But I could be wrong on that one. But, um, but I don't think that that's the case. I think that the third option is better, that the gospel was preached to individuals in their lifetimes who became believers by hearing and believing the gospel, but are now physically dead. Um. So you have lots of translations that actually insert that word now in verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached to even to those who are now dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live according to the will of God. So I think that he's talking about those who are now physically dead, who had the gospel preached to them in their life history and believed. So in other words, before this letter was written, there were believers in Jesus that had gone on to be with the Lord because they believed the gospel. And I think this is the probable meaning for for a few reasons. Number one, the term dead ties in with Peter's usage of the term in verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I think he's talking about those who have physically died, both believer and unbeliever alike. So it ties back into that. So the idea here in the flow of the passage is that in verse 5, God is ready to judge the living and the dead. And there are many Christians who have already died. And yet these Christians are not without hope because they had the gospel preached to them in their lifetimes. They were born again by the Spirit and one day will live full resurrection life by the Spirit just as Jesus in chapter 3 was said to be made alive by the Spirit. Second reason would be the past tense of the verb proclaim. So you notice there back in verse 6, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. This is a past action that has occurred in the history, in the life history of these people. You would think that if it was spiritual death in view, Peter would use a participle in an active sense, saying something like, that the gospel is being preached to the dead, or the gospel is preached to those who were dead. But Peter says that the gospel has been preached to those, in my opinion, who are now dead. He's preached to them at one time, they believed, and now they passed on. So this lends itself to focusing on these Christians who had already gone to be with the Lord. And now Peter moves on to the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel. I think the ASV picks this up really well. Um, I mean, they literally just track the Greek really well. The text literally says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. It's, It's better that it says, For unto this end has the gospel been preached, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but they may live in the Spirit according to God. So that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but they may live in the Spirit according to God. So this is part of the main purpose of the gospel being preached, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but they may live in the Spirit according to God. So what does he mean by judged here? Well, the term itself just means to select, um, to make an assessment about an individual based on evidence. 
And so the question is, who is doing the judgment here? It could mean that God is judging them. That is, that, that, that God brings a judgment upon these now-believers in the sense that he's talking about in chapter 4, uh, later, later in chapter 4, look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In that sense, the judgment there has to do with the refining process of persecution and trial God brings upon his people. So perhaps it's God bringing upon this judgment, but I, I don't think that that's what it is. I think he's saying that the purpose of the gospel being preached is that people, these believers might be judged according to men in the flesh means that they might be judged by the unbelieving world. And I say that because this judgment, he says, is according to men. Kataanthropoi, I think, is, is the term. It's a plural noun modified by kata means the judgment is according to men. According to men in the flesh. So what, that, what does that mean? It means that these believers are judged and assessed and persecuted by simply human standards, not God's standards. They are treated according to the worldly perceptions of men. I think that's what Peter's saying here. Think about some statements that Jesus makes. John chapter 7, Jesus says, If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken... He's speaking to the Jewish leaders here. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, Jesus is saying there's a way to judge merely on the surface level of things that won't see the deeper matters, the the matters that are truly righteous from God's perspective. And Jesus says, judge with righteous judgment. Judge according to God's assessment of things. This is even clearer here in John chapter 8. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Jesus said he was constantly analyzed by these religious leaders. And he says he was constantly analyzed by their judgments, which he says, which are according to the flesh. These, these assessments that was constantly appealing to just the, the, the fleshly, worldly assessments of mere men. And Peter says that in some sense, this is the purpose of the gospel being preached to them, that they might be judged according to men. And this is what I think it means. I think what Peter is saying here is he's saying that these people, in, these believers that have experienced being maligned and spoken evil of, they need to understand that this is just par for the course as being believers. Meaning that the gospel brings with it a, a sort of winnowing effect. It brings with it a, a magnetism of criticism. Think about Jesus' statements here in Matthew chapter 10. He says this, Do not think I have come to bring peace on the earth. You might think that. You know, when you meet Jesus, he's, he's the most compassionate man who's ever lived. He's got a heart as big as eternity. He heals people. He delivers people from demons. Welcomes children. Man, when, when you're around him, you just feel like everything's okay. But Jesus wants to make sure that you don't, you don't infer from that too far that he's come to just make the world a better place. That's not why he came. He says his intention of why he came. I have come to bring a sword, he says. Do not think I've come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's why he came. Now, that's very interesting. That is the intention of his coming. Jesus says, I have come with an intentional purpose to cut and divide. Divide who? Who will be divided from one another? Well, he goes on to say it. 
For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is staggering here. Jesus says, I have come to set members of families against each other. That's what he says. Now, he, he does not mean that he comes to make us quarrelsome and belligerent against our family members or hate them. Here, he goes on to say what exactly he means. And it's an issue of love. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You want to be worthy of Jesus? Love him more than your wife. Love him more than your husband. Love him more than your mom and dad. Love him more than your kids. If you don't, you're not worthy of Jesus. He's that valuable. Jesus' point here is that when someone follows Jesus, he becomes their supreme love. And because of this, their allegiance is completely to Christ, far more than any other human relationship. And when the family wants you to live a certain way like them that deviates from Christ, or indulge in what they indulge in, or pursue what they pursue, and then you don't because you love Christ more, it will bring a sword. It will bring division, and Jesus is clear. If you're not prepared to give up family members to follow Him, you're not worthy of Him. Brethren, He's the Eternal Son. He's the Lord of glory. He's God. We are to have no other gods before Him. That's what it is, right? If you love anything more than the living God, you've made them an idol. You can make family members idols. You can make children idols. Right? You see this. I, 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 I've seen this in families where the women are driven along by, by, by their children in such a way that their whole life is just, is just dictated on, on, on their kids. And they forget about the gospel. I see this. I see this stuff happen. I see this stuff happen. You can see it in Muslim contexts where people have some real soul searching to do. Am I going to be baptized for Jesus? Or am I going to, am I going to stay with being aligned with my family? It could mean that I die. Jesus is worth it. But I see this kind of stuff in my own extended family. These words are, are gripping. Our allegiance must be completely to Jesus. He's the Savior of our souls. He's worth more than our lives. And this gospel that we believed will prove that we believe that. And he tells us these things, that this division will happen. And Peter tells us that the purpose of the gospel is so that we might be judged according to men, so that we won't stumble and be surprised when it comes. John tells us, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Now we should be grieved when unbelievers persecute us. But if we despair, we reveal that we care more about their opinions than Jesus. We can't go there. So in some sense, this is the purpose of the gospel. For to this end has the gospel been preached, that though they are judged in the flesh according to men, they may live. And perhaps the judgment of these men that Peter is talking about here on these believers that have gone on to be with the Lord, perhaps this judgment this persecution, this maligning has, has, has been the very thing that's taken the lives of these believers. 
I started to ask myself, would Peter have known any Christians who first, who, uh, firsthand who died for their faith? You know, did Peter know anybody? Sure. How about Stephen? Stephen was stoned to death in Jerusalem. And it didn't stop with Stephen. Remember in Acts 8, immediately following Stephen's death, Luke tells us that a great persecution emerged and broke out against believers. And many fled to Judea and to Samaria. I mean, think of that. I mean, this persecution was so great that Christians were leaving their homes. I'm sure Christians had probably died in the in the throes of that great persecution. And then later we find that Claudius kicked out many Jews, including Jewish Christians from Rome, due to some controversy over Crestus, which many think was a dispute about who Jesus was. Was he Messiah or not? And this reached a boiling point and forced Claudius to push the conflict out of his realm. In Acts 18.3, it records this Jewish expulsion from Italy under Claudius. Tacitus actually tells us that Christians under Nero, who was the governor at the time here, the emperor, Caesar, Tacitus actually tells us that Christians under Nero are hated so much in Rome that they would be an easy target to blame when Nero burned Rome to the ground. And he did blame them. In any case, being judged by men might mean maligning, or it might mean maligning unto death. It might, it might mean that. So this is sort of the first side of the coin of the purpose of the gospel being preached, that it has this winnowing effect. For unto this end has the gospel been preached, that they might be judged in the flesh according to men, but might live in the spirit according to God. And by the way, I think in the flesh here means it just describes the state of our earthly mortal life. Peter latches onto this term several times in chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then chapter 4, a couple of times here in 1 and 2, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So this human judgment occurs while we are in this flesh, while we are in this earthly tent. But again, Peter says, but while we may be stricken down here, maligned here in the flesh, Peter gives great encouragement and hope for us beyond this world. And that's where he talks about the other side of the purpose of the gospel, is that they may live in the Spirit according to God. Live. They may live in the Spirit. He's talking about these people that have gone on to be with the Lord. He's talking about these people who are now dead. Peter wants them to know that they're alive. He wants them to know that they have experienced the power of the Spirit in their lives. Death doesn't separate these believers from Christ. And again, the text is really close to to 3.18. Christ died for sins once for all, just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, right, that's the cross, but made alive in the Spirit, that's the resurrection. Two states of being, one in the flesh, one in the Spirit. That is, Immortality and resurrection existence. So as are so many truths of the gospel, as Christ is is a certain way, we will be a certain way. In other words, if he suffers in obedience to his Father, so will we. If he's persecuted, so will we. But if he is raised... By the Spirit, so will we. But the question could be, as the church is sort of, again, in its infancy stages here, 
as the world looks on and, and sees these Christians, the question could be, hey, you Christians, you claim to know God and you, you claim to have the truth. You claim to have life. Well, if you have the truth, then why do you still die like everybody else? Why do you still get persecuted and hated? And Peter's answer here is that, well, because death doesn't have the last word for us. As a matter of fact, often in history, the way saints die compel unbelievers to seek the God for whom these believers lose their lives. But also, I started thinking about this, and the reality is is that it's not unheard of that believers needed teaching on the state of those who had already died in Christ. These, these things were getting clarified and developing to some degree. Think about Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. He writes to the Thessalonians regarding the saints who have fallen asleep, assuring those who are concerned that perhaps they're missing out on some blessing of, that, that they won't miss out on. Paul wants to tell them, look, you'll be together again with them and you will both be with the Lord forever. You're not going to miss out on eternal blessings of being with Jesus. John also in the Revelation declares, blessed are those who die in the Lord from here on. So in these early stages of the church, the clear hope of life after death by the Spirit has to be clear. So they're judged in the flesh according to men, but they may live in the Spirit according to God. In the Spirit. In the Spirit. I don't think here it's talking about the human spirit. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, I think, is the same Spirit that Peter has in view here. I love the Nicene Creed, the statement of the Spirit. This isn't all that is said, but The first few phrases there that he is the Lord, the giver of life. The Holy Spirit who is the Lord, the giver of life. Everywhere in the scriptures you find that the Spirit is the one who affects and creates life. Remember John chapter 3 It is the Spirit, or maybe this is John 6, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh, profits, nothing. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh, profits, nothing. Romans 8, 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here the Spirit is described as the Spirit of life, that is, the Spirit who brings about life. That's what He does. Romans 8, 6, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. Romans 8, 11, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Here God's direct agent of creating resurrection life for our bodies is the Holy Spirit of God, the very one God the Father used to bring His Son's body to life. Galatians 6.8, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The reality is that we are so, we are utterly desperate for the Holy Spirit. Not only in this life, but also in the one to come. to glorify us, immortalize us, immortalize our physical bodies to dwell with God in glory. You remember what Jesus says in John 14, 16? You you might miss it, but just think about it. It's worth lots of pondering. Think about this. John 14, 16, Jesus speaking of the time when he's going to go away by the cross and then ultimately to the right hand of God and he's going to send the Holy Spirit. But listen to how he talks about it. He says... John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. Forever. 
It's an eternal gift, an eternal helper. Forever. God's Holy Spirit, who is with us in this life and will be with us forever. So, we don't need to wonder how we will be raised or how we will be glorified. We just know that God, the Spirit, takes care of all that. And as sure as we have Him now, we'll have His fullness then. Now, what's the main point in all of this? The main point is this. The gospel has a goal, an ultimate, an ultimate purpose, and it is amazingly powerful. The gospel's purpose is to bring a sort of winnowing effect, but also it's a gospel that gives hope beyond the grave. But it's only the gospel proclaimed that can give that. Only one means by which men and women are raised incorruptible. It's only this gospel. This gospel that involves God's character, man's sinfulness, and its consequences of eternal punishment. Christ's impeccable person and work on the cross, which achieve a real atonement and reconciliation with God, all acquired by repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message. This is, this is the, the message proclaimed that God has given to His church. This is the message we must never be ashamed of. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 20-25, these words, he says, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. As you grow on in your Christian life, as you grow older, you will feel pressure to deviate away from God's wisdom in the gospel. Either by changing it or by talking about other things. It's actually fairly easy to talk about God as creator. That's a, that's a wonderful truth, and we should talk about it. But it's very easy to talk about a lot of these other things rather than what the world dubs as foolishness. But brethren, it's actually through the foolishness of that message, the foolishness, the world puts that label on it, but it's through the message of the gospel of Christ crucified, Paul says here, that's the very thing that will save. And as time goes on, as you get older, and perhaps maybe it's a while since you've seen someone saved by believing this gospel, or maybe you just feel the pressure from outside to dilute this gospel, we cannot ever deviate from it as a church. You can't deviate it from you personally, and you can't deviate it, we can't deviate from it as a church. We will feel the pressure of it being foolish. We will feel it. We will, we will not want to go places that we really have to. It's like I was talking to a guy on Tuesday night um, and just telling him that the cross makes no sense if people can be good enough to be right with God. The cross makes no sense. All Jesus' suffering was in vain if human beings have this inner potential to achieve righteousness that God accepts. It's ridiculous. And so the cross exposes the sin of man. It exposes them for who they really are. It shows them that you really are empty and bankrupt. And not only that, more to that, you're, you're someone that, that right now is in a posture of being an enemy of God. 
And this is something that is, is foolishness to the world. Yet to those who have ears to hear, Paul tells us here, it is going to be the most profound, the most powerful, the most awe-inspiring news they have ever heard. And why? Paul says here, to those who are the called, he says, the called, both Jews and Greeks, oh, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What makes the difference between someone who thinks it's foolishness and someone who thinks it's wise and powerful? The called. God's voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. And this is the confidence we have, brethren. The confidence we have is certainly not in our ability to put it all together in a way like Charles Spurgeon Our confidence is the fact that as we preach this message with the framework of God's character and man's sinfulness and and Christ the Redeemer and a response of repentance and faith, that as we present that and however we're going to present that, God is in it and he will call them. That's our confidence. Again, that's our confidence. God has made his own box. Remember my professor in college used to say, don't put God in a box, Chris. He can save people wherever he wants. I'm like, God's made his own box and it's called the gospel. And it's only through the gospel that people will be saved. The knowledge of the cross. People cannot reason from an acorn to a Roman cross. They need this unpacked. They need this explained. They need... Paul says to the Colossians, you've come to understand the grace of God in the gospel. People must understand these things. We must not be ashamed of this gospel. We must be clear about this gospel. God calls people through this gospel. This is an exciting reality, honestly, isn't it? God calls people through this gospel. As the gospel and the cross is lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all men to myself. You know, it's interesting that the Bible is not bashful about calling the message of the cross foolishness. God knows that it is foolishness to the world. He knows people will think this. The Jews, for instance, they they don't like to think about Messiah's dying. We don't like to think that we are helpless to save ourselves. The world thinks they are so smart and wise and, hey, maybe Jordan Peterson knows or, hey, maybe Richard Dawkins knows or, hey, maybe Sam Harris knows or all these gurus of life and philosophy. But brethren, God knows. And he, Paul tells us here, he has so set it up that the world through its wisdom cannot know him. They must bow the knee before this glorious gospel of Jesus. They must. And so that's what's on us. And in some ways, that's, again, that's freeing. You don't have to have a, a three degrees in apologetics. Now read all you can. Be versed in all you can. Because obviously you can, you can build all kinds of bridges and inroads to talk about this gospel, but at the end of the day, you've you got to get to the point to where you tell people that, that, look, this is the only hope for human beings. It's in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And so I think this is, in some, this is Peter's point, that the gospel has been preached to those who've passed on It was preached in their lifetime. They now physically dead, but they will live in the Spirit according to God. They will live in resurrection life, even though in their own life history and in yours you will be judged according to men. But ultimately you will live. It's two different perspectives, right? And this is just so important. And this is why we can't ever get past the gospel. We have to go back to it again and again. We have to remind ourselves of the beauty of it all. 
We have to remind ourselves of the reality of it all. I'm on a thread with some college buddies, and one of my friends on there, um, he said uh, something to the effect that the incarnation really is everything. The incarnation, the, the fact that Jesus become a man, it, it, really, it really resolves so many sort of theoretical issues. And I told him that, that in my lifetime, as I've struggled about different doctrines and how do you deal with human responsibility and God's sovereignty? How do you deal with evil and suffering and all these things? When Jesus becomes a man and enters into the world of, of men and suffers and then dies brutally at the hands of men, experiences evil and suffering in himself, all of that theoretical question, it's, still, it's not that it still doesn't have some questions, but Jesus brings the, and sort of validates the truth of what God has said about all that in the incarnation and the cross. The gospel is amazing. It is all wise. It is incredibly powerful. That it, it, it makes God both just, preserves his justice and also justifies enemies. And it's, it's so wise because he does it in a way that you and I just could not fathom and concoct. It's amazing. So I, I, I just, I want to appeal to us to never get past it. I want to, Appeal to us to get more and more versed in it and, um, and that we'll be confident in it. And I speak from my own, from my own experience that you're, you will be challenged in your life you know, on, on whether or not you'll, you'll be ashamed of it. You will. And um, so again, we as a church just can't be. So that's all I have. I just wanted to stick with that text. I hope some of it made sense to you. And um, let's pray and ask the Lord to Give us more and more confidence in this gospel. Well, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of what you've done for sinners in history in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I just pray that we'd, we would recognize that this gospel is what gives human beings hope beyond the grave. And Lord, as exiles, that's sweet news to us. Now, Lord, we don't, we don't experience a lot of the suffering that most of the world does. But Lord, we, we know that we will experience some. And Lord, as time goes on, it could be more and more. And so Father, please help us. Um, please help us to know that we will be judged by men and women, by family members, by neighbors. Lord, help us to not be surprised by this. And Lord, I just ask you that for all my brethren in here who have sort of shrunk back or who have just become rusty in their, in their fervor for the gospel or in their um, adoration for it, Lord, that you would just blow that rust off and, and shine it up again. They would see how wonderful it is. And, and, um, so, Lord, again, just, just thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And I'll be with us this afternoon as we fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.